am I on? So, good morning, ladies. It's lovely to be back. It doesn't feel like it's been five minutes since I was last here. So, I'm sorry if you're getting a bit bored of my voice, but you'll have a whole summer holidays break of it soon. So, think of that. Okay, so last week I decided to conduct an experiment. I'm not a scientist by any means. This is more a social stroke Christian experiment. I asked a few friends to complete the sentence, near me is. So I said, I'm preaching Oasis in a couple of weeks and I need an illustration that my favorite friends can help with. Please, could you finish the sentence, near me is? It's important that I have the good, the bad, and the ugly, so don't hold back. Now, I recommend you only do this if you're willing to hear what they have to say. In that time between sending that message and receiving the responses, I felt a little vulnerable, it would be fair to say. Anyway, here were their responses. I've divided them into uh, two Christian friends and two non-Christian friends. I'm on a WhatsApp group with both of them. So I'm going to say what my non-Christian friends said. So the first one said, always there when you need her, very persuasive, strong on the outside and hides her emotions well, the best friend a girl called want. That's rather nice, really. Not quite sure where the bad and the ugly were there. Um, and then the other one on the bottom right-hand side said, loyal, the person you can rely on to be by your side in a crisis of joy. Uh, great fun to be around. Always lots of giggles and smiles. She has a twinkle in her eye, so watch out. I believe that's true. Um, welcoming to everyone, can make anyone at ease, loved by many. Naomi is an amazing person, and I'm very lucky to count her as my best friend. I thought that was really nice. I, I just didn't have to kind of panic too much. And then my Christian friends messaged me, and it started with, right, you did ask. Loyal, loud, and loopy. Feisty, funny, forceful. Caring, compassionate, courageous. Teacher, talker, terribly bad joke maker. Sensitive, silly, smutty. Faith-filled, loves Jesus, amazing friend. And above all, a right royal pain in the ass, which is why we love you. The next one said, I think the first one, has just about covered it, although I'd add to that list, beautiful, heroic, and sometimes inappropriate, at which point the first one said, only sometimes, and the next one said, I was being generous. <laughs> My friends have clearly got the measure of me pretty well, and they clearly love me, which is really reassuring. However, I noticed a disparity between what my Christians friends say about me and what my non-Jesus-loving friends say. I wonder if you can spot the same things that I did. Does anybody want to take a guess? I wonder if you can see them. Go on. My Christian friends were really honest. They did the good, the bad, and the ugly. My non-Christian friends dressed up some of the faults that I have in a really nice way, and um, they were just said the nice things. But my, my Christian friends were really, really honest. I like that. And there's one more thing. Okay, well, my Christian friends see my love for Jesus. My non-Christian friends don't mention him anywhere. My walk with God, 
my passion for Jesus, and the hope that I have don't make it into their comments. So when they think of me, these are not the things that spring to mind. These are not the words that go into near me is. And this has really challenged me and saddened me. So why is it they don't think of me as the friend who offers to pray for them or who shares her faith? And it got me thinking. Why is it we don't wear our faith more openly? What is it we're scared of? What is stopping us? I guess for many of us, we worry about how it will be received. Will I be laughed at? What if they think I'm weird or more weird than normal? Will they think I'm judging them? What if they think that I'm no longer fun? Will I be rejected or will I be persecuted? There's no doubt that discipleship can be tricky. Christians in other parts of the world understand this better than we do. So I've got a short video from Open Doors now. This is a charity who supports persecuted Christians around the world and gives them love and support. Um, it's quite a hard-hitting video, um, so just be aware. It's only about a minute long, um, but I thought it was really good to be able to show us the sort of persecution that um, other people go through that we don't have to deal with um, here. Do you know why we took you? You're false god! It's all help you now, Kenny! You're worth nothing. Is that Bible in your head? Is it? Is it? Is it in your head? Is it? Nobody cares that you're here. We're gonna have the beater out of you. <laughs> How can you believe it? How can you believe it? How can you believe it? What are you teaching them? Come on! Where are the rest of you rats hiding? I heard you singing. You're lying! I heard something else! What were you singing? Sign it! Renounce your faith and you can leave. Renounce your God! You imprisoned yourself! If you just sign, it will be over. Sign it. Sign it. Now, we may not go through this level of persecution or physical persecution like many Christians have. However, I'm sure many of us in some way have been persecuted for our faith or disadvantaged for it. We live with a fear of rejection and whilst many accept us as Christians, I'm sure there are some that don't. In our series so far, Peter has reminded us that the people he's writing to are going through various trials. He tells them how to prepare themselves for difficult times. And today, in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, please turn to that in your Bibles if you would find that helpful. He continues with the theme of persecution, but from a different angle. He shares with us how to persevere when suffering as a Christian for our faith. So we're going to read that passage. It's 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. 
Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, I find that quite a difficult passage to read and to take in, um, but we're going to dissect it a little bit. First of all, Peter tells us we are to expect persecution. So why should we not be surprised about it? Well, to be fair, we've had plenty of warning. During Jesus' ministry, he spent a large amount of time not only telling his disciples that he would suffer, but also preparing them to suffer too. In John 15, he warned his disciples that hard times were going to come. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We should therefore expect it and not be surprised when it comes. But I have a question. Why does it actually happen? Well, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark as to why God allows difficult times to come our way as a result of our faith. In short, it's God's will to test our faith. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The phrase, those who suffer according to God's will, is surprising, I think, because Peter suggests that Christian suffering is willed by God. It is according to God's will. Some might reply that this is God's permissive will. In other words, God doesn't actually will it, he just allows it to happen. But that interpretation does not work in this context. Verse 19 is closely connected with what proceeds in verses 17 to 18. They remind us that Christian suffering is actually God's spiritual refining process for Christians. The gold being refined in the fire. So when Peter says that some suffer according to God's will, he doesn't mean only that God permits the suffering, he means that God sovereignly wills the suffering. But this is amazing, because the suffering Peter is talking of here is caused by the actions of people who oppose and persecute Christians. That means, in, God, in Peter's mind, God is sovereign over us, but also sovereign over the actions of people who oppose him and his people. 
Now remember in 1 Peter 1, Peter said, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Peter says that just as gold is tested by fire, our faith is tested by persecution. So I heard about a women's Bible study group, probably a group not dissimilar to Oasis, And the women were looking at a passage in the Bible about gold and God's refining fire, exactly this. And they were a little bit confused about that, how the whole gold refining process was working. So one of the ladies decided to visit a goldsmith to learn more about the process. So the day she went to watch him, uh, she saw him get a piece of gold and hold it over the fire to heat it up. As he did that, he explained that in refining gold, you have to hold the gold right in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest to burn away all the impurities. If it's not right in the middle where the hottest is, the impurities will not be burnt away. This made the woman think about how God can hold us in a hot spot, burning away all our impurities. Then she asked the goldsmith, if he had to sit in front of the fire the whole time the gold was being refined? His answer was very enlightening. He said yes. Not only did he have to sit in front of the fire the entire time it was in the fire, um, he had to do that because if the gold was left a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. So the goldsmith has to sit and watch it. That made the the woman think for a moment. Then she asked the goldsmith, how does he know when the gold is fully refined? And he smiled as he answered, oh, well, that's easy, he said. I know it's fully refined when I see my image in it. And this is what God does. He heats things up to purify us with his eyes on us the whole time until he can see his image in us. Now, it's not always a very pleasant process. But how should we respond to this? Well, Peter warns us to respond to suffering by rejoicing in it. This seems to be a bit of a paradox. How can we rejoice when we're being persecuted for Christ? Well, we get a picture of this with Paul and Silas when they were in jail. In Acts 15, um, it says, Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So while they were in prison and in stocks, they were praying and singing hymns. The fact that we often see prisons on TV with meals, nice beds, and playtime in the yard, it might hinder our understanding of the gravity of their predicament. Now, whilst I wouldn't like to spend some time in prison, I suspect that current conditions are far better than the experience Paul and Silas had. There's unlikely to have been meals, toilet facilities, education, beds, or entertainment. Imagine the smell of urine all over the place. Imagine sweating from the heat because there's no air conditioning. 
Imagine the ants, the maggots, and the rats running around. I think if I were in this situation, in prison for my faith, I would probably be having a little rant at God, saying, it's just not fair. However, Paul and Silas respond with worship. So why should we rejoice? The first reason we can rejoice is because scripture teaches us that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. If we look at the apostles in Acts 5.41, it says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So the apostles, after being abused and told to no longer speak in the name of Christ, left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for Christ's name. For the disciples to participate in the sufferings of Christ, it essentially meant to be like him, which should be the hope of every disciple. For a disciple, the ultimate desire is to be like their master, whatever trade they are learning. Our master suffered for righteousness, and we are taught that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ and be treated as he was. Secondly, we should count ourselves fortunate as the Spirit of God rests on us. This is not only visible to those who see us, but brings us closeness and intimacy with God. We are changed into his image and we become empowered by the Holy Spirit and receive relief from our difficulties. And the third reason for rejoicing is that we will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, i.e. at the second coming. Why is this? It's because it will be a time of reward for the faithful. In Matthew 5, we're told, Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I really like this cartoon. The angel there saying, first of all, thank you for enrolling in our rewards program as someone's getting to heaven. <laughs> Love that. So we should rejoice. We have heaven to look forward to, and there we will be greatly rewarded. So we have already established that God is sovereign over Christian suffering, and also the fact that he is sovereign over the actions of those who persecute Christians. We have also established that we should rejoice in it. But what else does Peter say about how we should respond? Well, he sums it up pretty well in the second part of verse 19. He says, commit their souls to a faithful creator. Now, here's why I question, why would we want to commit or entrust our souls to the very God who has willed the suffering in the first place? The answer is that the suffering God wills for his people is intended for their good. And it is the very component of God's person and character that encourages his people to trust him in the midst of suffering. The word commit is actually a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. It can also be translated as entrust. This is a declaration to ourselves and the world around us that we will not wait for circumstances to improve before we call God good. We will believe that our good God is caring for us through our suffering and into the glory of eternity. 
another cartoon here. Bank account, heaven, empty. So have we deposited our lives into the bank of Christ? Or do we look a little more like the man in this picture? Sometimes it seems easier to invest only part of ourselves in Christ. However, God is the safest bank in the world. In fact, he's the only bank that is not going under. Putting our life in God's hand is never a bad investment. We can always trust that not only will he keep us safe, but he will give us a life that makes the most interest. And nobody is more worthy of our trust. So what do we do now? What is the evidence that we are trusting him? Well, we give evidence to the world by doing good. Nothing speaks more powerfully of our faith in God than to continue to do good even as we suffer. When we choose not to spend our energy seeking revenge or mind-numbing pleasure, we demonstrate that we are indeed a holy people set apart for God's purposes. When we choose to be brave and despite our fear of rejection, we become the person whom our friends say, she's my friend, she loves Jesus, and she prays for me, and there's something in her that I want. So as I stand back and look at this passage, it strikes me that we will never really believe it unless we also believe in the sovereignty of God over every detail of our lives. Peter teaches us that every trial that comes our way is under God's control. Nothing can touch us that does not first pass through the Father's loving hands. We will never believe in the sovereignty of God in our trials unless we also believe that he loves us with an everlasting love. And we will never be convinced of God's love unless we fix our eyes on the cross. There we see how the evil purposes of man serve the internal purposes of God. There we see untold human suffering accomplishing our eternal salvation. Fix your eyes on the cross. Start there and your own troubles will come into proper focus. What God did for Jesus, he will also do for us. Apart from the cross, it makes no sense to rejoice in our suffering. So, have you ever done that? Is that a step you need to take right now? I imagine that there are some people listening this morning um, who feel as though they can't clearly see the way forward. When this happens, nothing is more important than committing or interesting ourselves to God as our faithful creator, who loves us and who promises to take care of us. Instead of trying to figure out how to solve our own problems, we need to say, Lord, I can't do it. I admit that without you, I can't change anything. Let your will be done in my life, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, with nothing held back. When we begin to pray like that, God hears. And whether or not our circumstances change, we will change on the inside. So I'm going to pray that now. Okay, dear God, thank you that you are sovereign over everything and everyone. 
Lord, we know that being open with and sharing our faith can be scary sometimes and that the fear of rejection can hold us back. I can't do that without you. I admit that without you, I can't change anything. Let your will be done in my life, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, nothing held back. Amen. So I wonder how many of you prayed that prayer with me. So before we go to our groups, um, I'm going to try something. And I would love it if you would step out in faith with me. It's always nice to do it with a friend. Okay. Uh, if you've got your phone with you, could you get it out, please? I didn't warn you that it was going to be interactive today, did I? I have mine too. Okay, I'd like you to have a think about all the people you know. Just think where you might know them from friends, family, church, neighbours, a club, the lady who works at Tesco's, the postman, the people you see regularly. Now have a think, of those people, how many do you know are not yet Christians? How many people got? Quite a few. Has everybody got somebody? Probably a good handful. I could probably count about 70 people for me. Okay. This is where it gets interactive. So I wonder if we could step out in faith now. I wonder if we could send a quick message to one of these people, one of our non-Christian friends, family, neighbor, colleague, either a text or an email, asking them if there's anything that you can pray about for them, that you've been thinking about them, and is there anything that they would like prayer for? Or, if you're feeling really brave, go and give them a ring. That feels a bit scarier though, doesn't it? Now, there's absolutely no pressure for anybody to do this. If the thought of it terrifies you, don't panic. Okay, But it would be lovely if we could be brave enough to have a go. So we'll have a few minutes now, have a pray, have a think, see who God puts into your mind and send your message if you are comfortable doing so or even if you are uncomfortable doing so. And when we've done that, we can go to our groups and perhaps we want to share with our groups who we've messaged
can see quite a few people texting. Well done for stepping out, ladies. It's not easy. So when you're done, just feel free to head off into groups, grab another coffee, another piece of cake, another plate of fruit, and enjoy the rest of the morning. <laughs>